0: Well, as we can uh, continue a series that we started a a few weeks ago, ago, uh, titled, Where the Battle Rages, God's Word and Our Broken World, we began um, a series on Satan and spiritual warfare. And I just want to give you a little bit of a heads up for the next three weeks. Uh, And we have, the next three weeks are going to be three guest speakers, and I'm super excited For each one of them, and I I trust you will be as well. Next week, uh, we have a missionary with us, Wayne Vanderweer. Uh, He's going to actually be with us uh, in our ABF hour as well, so come and get an update on uh, his, his mission work. And then he's going to be preaching in the morning service on the topic of soul care. Uh, how do we care for our souls as we face the many ups and downs and adversities and the stresses and the anxieties and the worries and the depression and the distresses that we face? So really excited for him. The week after that, Chuck to Clean is going to be... Uh, coming And again, he'll be in the ABF hour and he's going to do a Q&A time uh, with us on the topic of evangelism. So if you uh, have any questions at all on any spectrum of evangelism, I encourage you to be there for that. You can turn those into me, uh, a question on paper. Otherwise, just show up and we can ask uh, questions from the floor as well. And then the week after that, which would now, I believe if my dates are correct, would be the 21st. Uh, a friend of mine uh, named Andrew Bush, who is a, a biblical counselor counselor, uh, certified as such, and has given uh, some, uh, given a few outbreak sessions uh, at a counseling conference on the issue of sexuality. And uh, him and I have been going uh, back and forth, and I'm really excited uh, for him to come as we've talked through some of the things he's going to, to touch on as, a, as, a, as we continue this series. Now, in developing the current topical study we are in, I knew I wanted to include a sermon on Spiritual, Satan and spiritual warfare and what was originally planned on one sermon has now turned into what is now number three. And in God's providence, the next item to discuss when it comes to Satan and spiritual warfare, I believe, couldn't be more important for the life of Calvary Baptist Church at this moment in time. The topic the, uh, for this message is from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27. Give no opportunity to the devil. Now, what we're going to do, we're going to look at the verses surrounding this phrase. We're not just going to stick on that. We're going to look at the verses surrounding that here later on. But at first, I want to lay a foundational context about Ephesians chapter 4. before You can turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, but before we jump into... Uh, verse 27 and our topic this morning, I want to give some foundational context to why Ephesians chapter 4 is uh, where it's at and what it's saying. Now the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are bracketed with the word glory, especially as it pertains to the glory of God. So in chapter 1 verse 14, Uh, And there's even some uh, in in verses prior to that. But chapter 1, verse 14 is kind of the the cemented statement here. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And then at the end of chapter 3, in verse 20 and 21... It says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That word glory describes the weightiness of God. It's a term that refers to the brightness of God's being, To glorify God is to see God for who he really is and to give him our highest praise and honor. And in Ephesians, Paul is showing us, what Paul is doing is he's showing us the glory of God by showing us the riches of his kindness towards us who are sinners, so put another way, Paul spends the first three chapters of Ephesians showing us the glory of God in God's acts of grace and mercy and kindness in saving sinners destined for eternal hell. And just to give the quickest overview of things we can spend an eternity on, and will spend an eternity thinking about and learning more about, if you are in Christ, that means that God has blessed you with immeasurable and incomprehensible, at least in this lifetime, blessings. In Christ, God chose you. He picked you. He purchased you. He obtained you. Further, he adopted you into his family to be one of his children. He redeemed you with the blood of Christ and forgave every sin you have ever committed are committing right now or will commit in the future. All who are in Christ have been entered into God's eternal will to receive an eternal and perfect inheritance in heaven with Christ. Christ's death secured the believing sinner's eternal inheritance. In Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. That means if you're in Christ, you were sealed, you were marked, you were stamped. You were identified as God's child as a guarantee that you will make it to heaven. And that nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You were, if you're a Christian, you were at one time destined for wrath and for hell. Because you walked in, and I walked in, sinful rebellion against God. And we lived for our own passions. But God saved you by his grace through your faith in Christ. And it's not because of any works that we have done, but because of Christ alone. That's the glory of God Paul wants us to see in Ephesians chapters 1 to 3. Now that's a quick overview. But there's one other verse I want to bring in here as we establish a foundational context. And it's back in Acts chapter 20. And so if you want to turn, you can turn there. Acts chapter 20. Because Paul as we get an account of his missionary journey, in Acts chapter 20, Paul actually stops to speak with the elders in Ephesus. And he says to them in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, listen to this or read it or I think it's on the screen. He says, To these elders of the church, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The SV says to care, the word literally is translated to shepherd, to shepherd the church of God. Now notice this phrase, which he obtained with his own blood. The church, now the church is defined if you look back at verse 21, where Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was pro- profitable, uh, teaching public and house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks. Repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The true local church is made up of Christians. Who is a Christian? A Christian is someone who has repented towards God, confessed their sin. Repentance means to change course. So it's when a sinner goes to God and says, God, I've been going my own way. I've been living for my own passions. I've been living in rebellion against you. I confess it as sin. I confess it as rebellion. And I believe. I believe in Jesus the one who died for me and rose again. And so here's what I want you to see. That moment when a sinner repents of his or her sin, when they repent of their ways, their rebellion, and that person places his or her faith in Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Savior, at that moment they are completely and totally forgiven and accepted by God in Christ for all eternity No questions asked. And that moment of salvation, we call it, that moment of transformation, that moment of what we call the new birth, that moment of conversion, that moment of new life, everything involved in that moment of a sinner placing his or her faith in Jesus Christ was purchased. That moment was purchased by God with the blood of his only son. So if you've placed your faith in Jesus, that moment was not you earning your way to God. That moment was purchased by God, by the blood of his only son. And so we go back to Ephesians chapter three, at the end where he says, uh, when he says in verse 21, to him be glory in the church. Who else could possibly get any other glory in the church other than the one who bought the church with the blood of his own son. There's no room in this church for some pathetic attempt at blasphemous self-glory by Pastor Zach or anyone else in this church because God purchased it with with the blood of his own son. God bought it calvary baptist church with the blood of his own son jesus christ and if you're a christian you have repented and believed in jesus god bought you and he bought you with the blood of his only son jesus he bought you and then he brought you into union if you have indeed joined this church with this local body he he bought you and adopted you into his family nothing can take that away. and then he brought you into this local body And so I say God bought Calvary Baptist Church, I mean it, God bought Calvary Baptist Church with the blood of his only son. But here's the side we don't often see, and that's what's going to drive us to where we're getting at this morning. God bought Calvary Baptist Church with the blood of his only son. Satan wants the opportunity to borrow it for his own destructive and divisive purposes. Ephesians 4.27, where it says, do not give the devil an opportunity, is telling us that God bought this church. Satan wants to borrow it. God bought this church. Satan wants to beat it, blind it, bury it. God cherishes this church. Satan wants to shred it. So, the passage before us in Ephesians chapter 4 is important. Because when Calvary Baptist Church, like any other true gospel church that has ever existed or ever will exist, enters into a season of adversity or of trials or messiness or confusion or difficulty or division or unrest, regardless of what brought it about, Satan will be looking for opportunities to find a seat at the table. I'm going to say that again. The passage before us in Ephesians 4 is important because when Calvary Baptist Church, like any other true gospel church that has ever existed or ever will exist, enters into a season of adversity or of trials or messiness or confusion or difficulty or division or unrest, regardless of what brought it about, Satan will be looking for opportunities to find a seat at the table. And the way we prevent Satan from getting a seat, from getting an opportunity in God's church at Calvary Baptist is for all of our hearts to be tuned to the glory of God, seeing in the riches of his kindness and saving us from the wrath to come. That's why we sing songs about Jesus and not about pastors or members or celebrities or some feel-good message. We sing songs about the glory of God and Him purchasing us from our sins. So here's where I'm going this morning. And here's where I believe Ephesians 4 is meant to take us this morning in this moment in the life of our church. What's at stake in spiritual warfare is the unity of the church. Therefore, we must cling to our forgiveness in Christ and give all glory to God regardless of the circumstances we face. We must cling ever and only to the forgiveness found in Christ. And by doing that, we, we will be able to live a, an Ephesians 4 type of life as a church where the devil gets no opportunity. Now here's what we're going to do. We're going to dive into Ephesians 4.27. We're going to look at the phrase, give the devil no opportunity. And then we're going to back up and I'm going to give you, here eventually, it'll be a little bit yet. But I'm going to give you, and we're gonna, not going to spend a whole lot of time on each one. But I'm going to give you the five sins that give the devil an opportunity in our personal lives as Christians and as the church. But before then, let's look at this phrase. Do not give the devil and opportunity. If you have the NIV, or another translation, it may, it may say foothold instead of uh, opportunity. But do not give. Okay, this is a command. It's in the imperative form, which means this is not up for debate. God's church, which he obtained with his own blood, in which he is to get all glory, must obey this command. The unity of the church depends on it. Jesus has commanded his followers not to give the devil an opportunity. Which means, if it's a command, that means we also have a choice to make. We can either disobey Jesus and do the things which give the devil an opportunity, or we can obey Jesus and be sure not to give the devil Or be sure not to keep the devil. How do I want to say that sentence? We can obey Jesus and keep the devil from getting an opportunity. That's how I want to say it. Now, what's the word opportunity mean? It's a Greek word that's used over 100 times in the New Testament. It's pretty common. And it usually just refers to a a specific location like a city. So, for example, it says in Luke 4 that Jesus went to a deserted place. Right, A deserted place. There was a certain location that he went to. It's kind of the sense of the word. It's a location. As I mentioned earlier, the NIV translates the word opportunity as foothold. Well, what is a foothold? To have a foothold is to have a solid place to stand so that you can make progress on your, I mean, just imagine climbing a mountain. If you want a solid foothold, you want a solid place to put your foot so you can keep up the climb. As you're going on a journey, you want to have a solid place to put your foot so you can continue on the journey. So that's what he's saying here. The Holy Spirit... Through Paul's writing is saying, don't be the person or the church where Satan can gain a secure position. Don't give the devil a foothold, an opportunity, a place to stand within the church to carry out his plans. Don't give him a place to operate. Don't give him a place to carry on his agenda We are to keep Satan from having any opportunity to accomplish his destructive purposes within the church. So, Paul is saying, you, and that's plural, you plural, in your lives, in my life, in the church, don't give the devil a place among you. So, as we've talked in previous weeks, we won't review all of it, but we can't keep Satan and his demons from having a presence among us. But we can, and are commanded to, make sure they don't get a place in this church. And notice he uses the word devil. A lot of things come to mind. We hear devil nowadays from silly cartoons we watch growing up to how it's portrayed in movies. And we kind of talked about Satan's, none of those things. But the word devil is the second most used term for Satan in the Bible. Give no opportunity to the devil. The Greek word is diabolo. We get our word diabolical. Literally translated, it means slanderer. The devil is a slanderer. To slander is to speak maliciously or falsely about another person. Uh, we see Satan's slander at work against Job in Job chapter 1 and 2. You remember there where, where actually God brings Job to the story, but we don't have time to go through all that. But Satan says to God, God, you think, you think Job is some godly guy who loves you? You are completely wrong. And Satan slanders Job right to God's, I mean, it slanderously accuses Job right to God's face. And he says, Job just loves you because you've blessed his life and you've given him all these possessions And so he says, if you want to know the real Job, let, give, give, me, give me a shot at Job. Let me take it all away, and I'll show you, God, this Job, of, this precious Job of yours, who you think is blameless and righteous, he's going to curse you to your face. And God's response, go for it. Satan slanderously accused Job he accused Job of loving God only because God had given him all these great blessings. He spoke in a way to try to get God to think of Job in an evil light. Satan is the devil, the slanderous accuser. He did the same with Joshua the high priest. And Again, we're not going to have time to look at this whole thing, but just look at the verse from Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Isn't that where we all want to be? But then in his vision, Zechariah also saw Satan Standing at his right hand to accuse him. In Revelation, the, the Satan is called the, the accuser of the brethren. He's constantly accusing. He's the slanderous accuser. And I don't think Satan was accusing Joshua, the high priest, of doing something good. He was speaking maliciously, accusing falsely. He was slandering. So what Paul is saying here is don't give the slanderer a place among you. Don't give the slanderer a place to stay. Satan will never leave the church alone. He is always looking for ways to get in and disrupt the unity of the church. The devil knows if the unity of the church can be taken away, then that church is useless. Satan has no problem with the church, that has its doors open and welcomes 250, 300 people every single Sunday, yet the people are divided. He has no problem with the church existing with disunity. He has no problem with the church that has given him the opportunity through whatever door he's been given the opportunity to come in, settle down, find a place to work. What the devil hates... What Satan hates is a church, even one that finds itself in adversity, that is unified in Christ. And he is not given a place or given an opportunity, either with individuals or with the church as a whole. That's what Satan hates. So let's look at this larger context, and again, we're not going to spend too much time explaining much of this, because I think they're pretty self-explanatory, but we'll make comments as, uh, here in just a minute. So verse 25 of Ephesians chapter 4. Remember, kind of remembering that foundational context. Glory goes to God in the church, because God purchased this church with his own son's blood. And then he talks about unity of the church in earlier in Ephesians 4, but then he gets to verse 25. And really, verse 24, he talks about being created after the likeness of God. Remember that, we talked about earlier, that new life that we're given in true righteousness and holiness. So then he says, Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Verse thirty one, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander oh, slander the devil again we got the same word be let it all be put away from you along with all malice. And then he closes this chapter verse thirty two. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I read that reminding ourselves, again, that I believe Satan has his eyes more supremely focused on a church that has entered in God's loving and sovereign plan into a season of adversity. Regardless of what brought about such a season, he is looking for a way in, a seat at the table, a location to call his own. And we're also reminding ourselves after reading this fuller context, which isn't the, like the fuller, fuller context, but right around uh, the verses, right around these words, is that what's at stake in spiritual warfare is the unity of the church. Therefore, we must cling to Christ and give all glory to God, regardless of the circumstances we face. In war, a beachhead is defined, according to the definition I read, a beachhead is defined as a temporary line created when a military unit reaches a landing beach by sea and begins to defend that area as other reinforcements arrive. And so the idea is, a beachhead is where those first kind of troops land, and they defend that beach, and then once reinforcements arrive, then they can storm the beach, and they can carry on with their mission, and the invasion can make its progress. Now, Paul lists several sins in these verses. And I believe that Paul is saying if these sins are allowed to linger in the believer's life, it creates a beachhead. It creates kind of that opening Satan is looking for so that he can jump in and further his agenda. It gives, it's these sins that we harbor in our own hearts and flesh that give Satan the opportunity to advance on the church. And our only hope to fight against these sins is the gospel. I don't ever want to lose that in this. Because as we stated earlier, comes the purchasing. This comes first. Chapters 1 to 3 comes first. The purchasing of the forgiveness for all who believe. The forgiveness of sinners was purchased by God with the blood of his son Jesus. Then comes the commands. Okay, so there are sins we are told to avoid. Not so that we can purchase our own salvation or earn our own salvation, but because the purchasing has already been done. The commands to avoid and put away sins are there because God did not purchase us from our sins so that we would continue to live in them. God purchased our salvation by the blood of Jesus, but he also purchased our sanctification. Put another way, at the cross, Jesus died not only for our sins, but for our holiness. Now here are five sins that give Satan an opportunity to find a place in the church. And again, my explanations will be brief. Number one, falsehood. Number one, falsehood. Therefore, verse 25, having put away all falsehood, Satan is the father of lies. John chapter 8, verse 44. He deceives. He's the great deceiver. We've looked at that time and time again. Any Christian who harbors falsehood, lies, or deceit produces an opportunity for the devil. Falsehood or lying or deceit, it's a sinful tool we use that stems from sinful motives to do sinful things. It's often used to manipulate others or even using so that we can hide from others. Satan is looking for the Christian harboring falsehood. Deceit, lies in their marriage. Are you harboring lies in your marriage? At your jobs? Are you harboring lies with your boss? In relationships? Are you harboring falsehood and lies and deceit? And of course here in the context in the church. Are you harboring falsehood? lies in the church. And he gives, it's interesting, he gives a reason, talking about the church, why we should put away falsehood because he says at the end of verse 25, for we are members one of another. Falsehood, lies, saying what is false and deceitful hurts the church. And the way to keep falsehood and lying and deceit from our hearts is to be filled, as we've mentioned before, with the truth. God's word is truth, John 17 Where Jesus prays, sanctify them with your word. Your word is truth. God hates falsehood. Actually, the Bible says, I'm kind of swinging to the other end of the spectrum here a little bit. But the Bible actually says that the person who loves lying and falsehood is destined for hell. Those who live lives and, and whose character can be characterized by a love of spreading falsehood, people whose lives can be characterized by loving lying and loving deceiving others, should repent and believe the gospel. Because it'll be on the screen for you here, Revelation chapter twenty one, verse eight, where Jesus said, or uh, where it says, "But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral." Uh, more immoral sorcerers idolaters and all liars their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death we used to, we, you know, we, you've probably heard that phrase flippantly thrown around oh all liars go to hell all liars go to hell now can Christians lie and still go to heaven the answer is yes we get a clear picture of that of Abraham remember Abraham he lied a couple different times And yet he was found to be righteous. So what I want to emphasize here is that, again, this is a person whose life can be characterized by the love of lying. By the love of falsehood. Whose character is that of spreading falsehood. But nonetheless, back to Christians, back to this church, back to the unity, back to the opportunities of the devil in Christians' lives, lies. Real lies, deception, and falsehood must not be allowed to linger. Here's number two, anger. An angry person is warned with the same warning as the liar. Jesus, the one who purchased our redemption with his own blood, takes great issue with unrighteous anger. Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. Notice the words Jesus uses here. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, or kind of the idea is, you good for nothing, will be liable to the hell of fire. And I want you to know how many times in this verse Jesus points out that our anger is often revealed in words. You say... Maybe if it's, even if it's in your heart. Anger often reveals itself in words. Angry people insult their target, label them as fools without any biblical specificity or grounds to do so. Their only source is how they feel. And so Jesus is saying that anger is a serious issue. And anger often leads to other sins. Saying things we regret, making decisions we regret... It's no wonder the devil finds a foothold in an angry church or an angry church member. Yet the gospel saves us from anger at the daily level. Now, the the next three that we look at are going to be brief, but I I want to give you two illustrations from my own life that happened recently where the gospel saved me from this very anger. And by the grace of God, kept Satan from getting any sort of foothold in my life. Recently, I received, in a certain form of communication, a message that was seemingly wrongfully accusative and mischaracterizing, and it hurt. And I'm vague on that because that's really not the issue and really not the problem. The issue, however, was my response. At least my initial response. But thank God for brothers and sisters in Christ. Can I get an amen on that? Before I replied and issued my response, I sent it off to a brother in Christ. Because there was a portion in my response that was the result of anger welling up within me. And I had a brother in Christ look over this response before it went out and and the and the text I got back from this brother basically said basically, "Do you really want to say that now, do you want to know the honest answer <laughs> Yes and no yes, in selfish self defense I wanted to let my emotions go. I wanted to bust a cap. I wanted to let this person know what was really on my mind. But in a moment from that text, that text caused me, even though it was just a question, to remember my Savior, who was reviled, and he did not revile in return. See, the gospel doesn't just tell me that Jesus lived a perfect life and then pat me on the back for having such good theology. It shows me that Jesus lived through the very same moments that I lived recently, yet he didn't sin. Jesus was sinless where I failed. And it's Jesus' sinless perfection in the moments where I fail. It's the sacrifice of Jesus who died for a man like me who fails. It's the gospel of my Savior that saves me in those moments to respond with grace and humility and love. I promised you two, so here's the other one. I want you to picture this. Me trying to rest in a house of four kids under the age of 10, and also in this house, a recently adopted puppy, not even 10 weeks old. Yes, you're thinking rest was my first delusion. I'm resting and suddenly there's a burst of panic. Apparently the puppy had found a dead bat by the house and thought it was its new chew toy because why not get rabies 10 weeks into your earthly life? But I was called upon to handle the situation. And let's just say that the vibe I made sure I gave to Amber was that I was not very happy to be the one that called to handle this situation. I was not happy. I was quite perturbed, if that's even a word we still use it today. But then, soon, in the car drive, uh, as, as I made my way to somewhere where I needed to be after that moment, the gospel saved me again. Because in that car ride, I realized that, guess what, God did not give Amber a precious daughter of his, a daughter he purchased with the blood of his son. He did not give Amber to me to be my Messiah, to be sure that, to to make sure that, to be the source of my rest and whose whole existence revolves around making sure I'm perfectly satisfied and happy. Now, Amber is my greatest earthly good that god has given to me but she can't bear the weight of the needs that can only be met in christ and so the gospel tells me that the rest is found that rest is found in the person of jesus christ not anyone else not in a couch or a bed or a hammock rest is found in christ The gospel saved us all from, can save us all from these sins. The gospel saves us from the constant feeling in our gut that wants to knock out anyone who wants to to say another word. The gospel saves us, saves the one who wakes up just angry at the world. If it's not the gospel saving us on the day-to-day moments like this, then Satan will find a foothold and he's got a place at the table. Let's move quickly to the final three here. Stealing is the third one. I think we all know what stealing is in our own consciences. I think we can answer whether or not we're stealing from our jobs or we're stealing from others. But I do want you to notice again, Paul turns this outward. He doesn't just say, don't steal, but he says you should work. And at the end of verse 28, he says so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So Paul gives a reason for why we shouldn't steal. So we can work, get money and then be generous we ought to be generous brothers and sisters in christ we ought to be generous generosity is a sign of a gospel-centered church number four the fourth sin he lists here is corrupting talk Over in Ephesians chapter five, Paul mentions this again in verse four, uh, just across the page, perhaps for for you, where he says, "Let there be no filthiness, no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving." Okay, so corrupting talk it includes a lot of things: dirty jokes, degrading humor. Now, there is such a thing as good humor and good laughter. And there are even non-Christian comedians who actually are clean. But most of what we hear in this world is filthy and foolish. A pornographic mouth that flows from an impure heart. And so he says, don't let that be you. Put that away. And here he says, put on Thanksgiving. Give grace, uh, back in chapter 4, build up others. Give grace to those who hear. So chapter 4 helps us see kind of another angle to corrupting talk. Maybe it's not just the filthy jokes and all that stuff, but corrupting speech is speech that tears down, is vicious, is rotten. It can be words we say towards someone else or about someone else. It's speech that does not edify. It's speech that does not give grace. It doesn't lead people to the gospel. It actually takes them away from the grace of the gospel. It's speech that people, after hearing it, are no better off towards Christ, but worse off. And number five, an unforgiving spirit don 't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, and then he says in verse thirty one just he lists all these things. Let all bitterness uh, bitterness uh, that 's kind of that inward harshness towards another. Maybe you 've heard bitterness described as and rightfully so as drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. So put away all bitterness and wrath and anger. Uh, I think we know what those words kind of mean and entail. And then he used the word clamor. The word clamor in the Bible literally means to cry out. It means to raise an outcry. It's a public and outward expression of dissatisfaction. And then he mentions slander, which we've talked about what that means, and malice. The word malice is kind of the, the comprehensive word for depravity and evil. Anyone characterized by any of these that we just read here at the end when it comes to an unforgiving spirit will be characterized by an unforgiving spirit. Someone who is unforgiving and unloving. And instead of all this, we are called to be tender-hearted because Jesus purchased you. God purchased you with the blood of his own Son. Any sin that finds a home in our hearts will give Satan a foothold where he can further his agenda. We must be careful and constant in confessing our sin to God, turning from sin, resting in the gospel, and asking for grace and mercy to help us overcome the temptations that are common to man. The devil, the slanderer, must not find a place in your life or in this church. Warren Wiersbe says this in his book, and I've been accused of uh, not accused wrong. I mean, just I, Warren Wiersbe comes up, but Steve in his ABF Hour brought up C.S. Lewis again, so I figured I could bring up uh, Warren Wiersbe. Here is what Warren Wiersbe says in his book, *The Strategy of Satan*. Satan is the slanderer and the accuser of the brethren. Revelation twelve ten. When you and I slander the saints. Instead of praying and seeking to cover the sin in love, we are working for the devil. We should not be surprised if he gets a foothold in our lives and turns our weapons against us. End quote." What's at stake in spiritual warfare is the unity of the church. When adversity strikes a church, what's on the inside will show up on the outside. That's what trials and adversity, that's what they do. And our only hope, our salvation, our daily hope, is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's turning our hearts to the glory of God, who purchased this church with the blood of his only Son. Salvation belongs to our God. Let's pray. Salvation belongs to you, O God, not to me Glory to you, O oh God, not to me, not to anyone else. You purchased Calvary Baptist Church with the blood of your only son. And in that, we find the grace and the hope that even in moments where we fail, we look and see that Jesus was perfect in those moments. And we find the grace and the mercy and the help we need to respond and to kill our sin, God Help me kill these five things. Help this church, help individuals. Lord, may these five sins that so easily give Satan a place, a seat at the table, be crushed. As you say at the end of the book of Romans, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. God, as we come to the cross and are united in Jesus Christ, Satan is crushed. That's the kind of church we want, God. Give it to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.